Hello, this is Rabbi Rob Doberson, and welcome to this edition of Wrestling and Dreaming. A few months ago in our Talmud study group, we studied the section of the text from Masechet Brachot, the section of Talmud dealing with prayer. And I gave a sermon on this text this past Shabbat when we read Parshat Korach and when we read a Haftarah reading, a reading from the prophets about the prophet Samuel. The text is is amazing in so many ways. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized it raised a very serious question. And I'd like to share with you now the Devar Torah. You never know what you're going to find when you study Talmud. Some teachings of the rabbis, which are included in the thousands of pages of Talmud text, are just so astounding. So I want to share with you a text from Masachat Brachot, from the section of Talmud dealing with prayer. It's connected with the Haftarah reading for today because it concerns Chana, Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, the hero of today's Haftarah and one of the most honored figures in biblical history. The text certainly deserves attention for two reasons. First, it's a marvelous example of Midrash, of textual interpretation by the rabbis. And secondly, because it raises some very serious questions concerning prayer and our relationship with God. Fascinating and compelling questions. So first, let's look at the story. Hannah's husband was named Elkanah. He was also married to Penina. Penina had children. Hannah was childless. So Hannah goes up to the shrine at Shiloh, and she offers a tearful prayer to God, begging God for a child, and offering worship blessed with a son to dedicate him to the service of the shrine. Of course, that's what happens. She gives birth to Samuel, hands him over to Eli the priest, and he becomes the great prophet. That's the story. But the rabbis propose a series of midrashim, textual interpretations based on the wording of the Bible. But the fact is that the Midrash, the interpretation, is so clearly distant, so clearly divergent from the way we would normally read the text, that it's clear that these rabbis wanted to push a particular theological agenda and did so by placing it in the mouth of Hannah. Now, you can find the biblical text in a, in a Chumash if you look for the Haftorah reading for the first day of Rosh Hashanah, in the Yetz Chaim Chumash, it's on page 1226. But you can also find it just by looking in the Tanakh, 1 Samuel chapter 1. And I want to focus on verse 10. Verse 10 says that Hannah prayed to the Lord. Sounds straightforward. But if we were to ask, how would you say she prayed to the Lord in biblical Hebrew, you would say, Vatipalel el Adonai. But that's not what we read in the Hebrew. We read Vatipalel al Adonai with an ayin al instead of an aleph el. The word el means to, and you might think that the word al means on, which it does, but if you go to the lexicon of biblical Hebrew, you'll find page after page of specific definitions for this short word al, and one of them, towards the end, says that al can mean, quote, in a hostile sense, meaning against. And this is the definition the Midrash is based on. The rabbis teach that Hannah spoke against God. 
impertinently, rudely, with hostility, based upon the fact that it says al with an ayin. The word used is a word meaning to throw mud at. That's how they use the word for hostility or rudeness. It's a root meaning to throw mud at or to plaster a wall. Hannah doesn't just pray to God. She enters into a private mudslinging campaign against God, screaming out in anger. And then she mocks God. How does she mock God? Well, she calls God, if you look at the text, Adonai Tzavaot, Lord of Hosts. We're so familiar with that phrase from the Psalms, from the Siddur, we just accept it. But the Talmud points out that Chana coined the phrase. Chana is the first person that ever used the phrase Adonai Tzavaot, Lord of Hosts. And this rabbinic midrash claims that she used it ironically. Quote, Master of the universe, of all of the hosts and hosts of creation that you created, is it difficult in your eyes to grant me one son? What does it sound like to you? Well, to members of the class and to me, certainly, it sounds like Tevya. Would it spoil some vast eternal plan? But not just a working man's pipe dream of becoming rich, but from the depths of sadness and despair that infertility can bring to a woman, and she lets God have it. She lets God have it for not giving her what she feels she so deeply desired and deserves. And it doesn't stop there. I can't go into the details on this because it will take too long, but she threatens to undermine one of the Torah rituals in order to prove her point. It's really too complicated and would take too long to go into, but the bottom line is that there is a ritual called the sota, the trial by ordeal given to a, a woman who has been suspected of adultery. If she is acquitted, if she didn't commit adultery, if she's innocent, the Torah says she will conceive. Hannah takes that as meaning that as long as she can be cleared by the ritual of the sota, she'll then be able to conceive a child. And therefore, she threatens to pretend to commit adultery and then be acquitted and then be able to have a child. That obviously was not the spirit of this uh, ritual, which is horribly objectionable to begin with, but taking it in the context of the Torah, it was not clearly the objective of the ritual. And Hannah feels that by, in essence, undermining or sabotaging the reason for the ritual, she can have the child she dreams of. So what has she done? She's spoken impertinently to God, mocks God's power, and then threatened to undermine the sacred ritual to get what she so desperately wants. So what do we think the Talmudic rabbis thought about Hannah based upon these actions that they put into her, the, the words that she put in her mouth and the threats that she makes? Well, they must have respected her for it. First, because it's Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and why would they say something negative about her? But more importantly, it's clear they supported an action of this kind and her words, because in the end, she has a child. She gives birth to a son, and so God, obviously, according to the rabbis, must have approved or at least tolerated her impertinence and her threats, realizing how important this was to her and granting her hope, her wish. Now, this section and other rabbinic texts like it have led to the wonderful Jewish tradition 
of screaming out at God, lashing out at God, challenging God. Our tradition offers many examples of people who have done all of these things. And what's more important is that many of us have done so as well, maybe in private, maybe in public, screaming out to God when we feel we've been dealt with unjustly. And when we do it, we are not silenced, we are not ostracized, and it's not blasphemy. When we act in this way, we're not considered to be like Korach and his band and do not have to fear divine retribution for some kind of a theological rebellion. Our tradition understands that screaming out and challenging God, first of all, shows a belief in God, and secondly, shows a deep desire for justice, for healing, for God to give us what's critical to us, whatever the situation might be, what we feel we deserve every bit as much as Hannah did. And we believe God is strong enough to take the abuse. But there's a problem with this rabbinic teaching. And that is that Hannah shouldn't be used as the prime example for this course of action because she got results. She got what she wanted so badly. But the truth is, it usually doesn't work that way. I won't say it never works because that wouldn't be fair either. But I think we would all agree that it usually doesn't work. The anger at God serves a function, allowing us to release some anger that otherwise would be aimed at others. But most of the time, it doesn't result in and of itself in the change that we seek. So while I love these Midrashim for the license they give us, I think they are unrealistic. The rabbis lived in the same world we do. They knew that prayer alone doesn't change a situation. And while I'm willing to grant that Hannah might have been a particularly good person and that her offer to dedicate her child to God was impressive and selfless, she isn't that much better than many people who have cried out to God, whether kindly or impertinently, and didn't get what they deeply needed in life. So she is not the best example of yelling at God of screaming at God, of challenging God. So where does that leave us? I believe it leaves us recognizing that it is worthwhile sometimes to lash out at God for the problems of the world or the things that we lack in life. It's a good release of our stress, and it helps us to be clear about what really is important to us. But the most important thing is we can't leave it there. We can't make this the be-all and end-all. After we scream out, we have to then go and do all we can to make the world a better place or take every step we can to fulfill our critical needs and wishes, knowing that we may never get what we really want or feel we deserve in life or see the changes in the world that we would like to see. Prayer serves a critical need, but it is never enough. No matter how dramatic, We have to go about seeking the change in our lives through our actions. Screaming out in anger at God may help us feel that we've covered all our bases in trying to secure the blessings we seek. And who knows? Occasionally, it may actually work to change the situation. Maybe there's a power of prayer that we don't give enough credit to. But as much as the rabbis give their blessing to us to do it, this type of prayer should come with a disclaimer that we are familiar with from the fine print on infomercials on TV. Quote, individual results may vary. 
as long as we can accept that reality, it's perfectly fine to let God know how we really feel and then hopefully encouraged and energized to go out and make the changes we seek to make in our lives, even if we don't always achieve our fondest wishes and hopes. Until next time, thank you.